0: All right, open up your booklets to the guy's split night. There is a, um, there should be two open pages. There's also two open pages for the girl's split night. I have a uh, secondary goal here to uh, give you so much information tonight that you not only fill up both pages of your workbook, but also you fill up the girl's split night as well. So that's available to you if you run out of room with all of the All of the good material, hopefully, that I will be sharing with you. Uh, We are going to be talking tonight. Um, The title is Manliness and the Power of Personal Purity. Um, I think it will become very obvious um, what, what I mean by that. And what we want to accomplish tonight. So let's just get at it right now. So let's just pray. Father God in heaven, we're thankful for this weekend. Thankful for Jay and his willingness to serve us through the word. And how we have been so blessed through him. And we pray even tonight as we uh, gather here as men to talk about... um, an area of temptation that is so so dangerous to us, I pray that we would have soft hearts ready to hear and ready to learn and ready to grow in this, and we 'd also have hearts ready to believe in the gospel in this conversation. We pray this all in your son 's name. Amen. Now, as I was thinking about the topic of purity concerning uh, especially concerning sexual purity, I came back to the way we talked last year at our retreat. Some of you remember our, our manliness talk that we had last year. Um, remember, this, I, and I could kind of say that this is manliness part two, so, so that's why I added manliness and the power of personal purity. Um, and it's all about what I'm going to say here in the next five minutes. Uh, Just a reminder of that um, definition of manliness that I really enjoyed and I showed to you last year. Manliness is the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. It is the life that is satisfied, not in pursuing your own benefits, your own advantages, but is satisfied in living sacrificially for the benefit of of others that is what it means to be a man a man finds satisfaction in taking personal risks for the sake of others it is not satisfying unless he is truly risking something and putting true skin in the game we talked last year about paul remember that What a picture of manliness that Paul was. He burdened himself so that he would not be a burden to those around him. That's the kind of man I want to be. Paul didn't pursue all the freedoms that he could have pursued. Paul limited himself so that he could serve others. Paul was a picture of manliness. He was a picture of someone who gladly accepted sacrificial responsibility and found deep satisfaction and contentment in that. You guys were reading about this today in your devos in Philippians, right? Paul was a man that was content in life, and he was a man that was content even in difficult times of life. Why? Because he was living for another cause. That was the cause of Christ Jesus and the benefit of others. And as we talked about last year, there are many threats to manliness, right? There are many threats. Last year we talked about video games being a threat to your manliness. Uh, Video games fool you into feeling the rush of manliness from artificial responsibility, right? It, It fools you into thinking, wow, I'm achieving something, when really you're not doing anything. You're just wasting your life. And tonight, in a similar way, we're going to talk about pornography. And in a very similar way, it is a threat to manliness. Uh, Porn uh, fools you into an artificial and superficial pursuit of joy that is wholly self-centered. Porn requires no self-control. No sacrifice, no setting aside of the self, no limit on personal freedom. It is a holy, selfish act. It is a wholly proud act. And I would argue it is the greatest destroyer of manliness. If we are to define manliness as the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility, not taking any responsibility... And just feeding on your own self-satisfaction is the very opposite. It is the greatest destroyer of manliness, perhaps, that we have in our day and age. It's it's ironic, actually. Um, uh, actually uh, this, this requirement of no self-control, no sacrifice no setting aside of yourself no limit that's, 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 what, that's what porn requires it, it actually robs you of the greatest ability to enjoy sexuality in, in marriage because the, the key to joy and satisfaction in a sexual relationship with your future wife is actually self-control sacrificial living doing something for the benefit of others and not yourself and so the, the heart that feeds themselves on porn and trains themselves in porn is actually robbing themselves of the greatest joy and that is actually sex itself and that's an irony now to be clear tonight I want to be very clear to you all tonight that this is not an issue that I'm going to hold over your head saying you foolish you I am so far above you But I also want to be very clear to say that this, tonight, the sin that we're talking about that I know all of you struggle with is a sin for which Christ has died. And I want that to really sink in. This is a sin for which Christ has died. You'll never get anywhere in the area of temptation and this struggle if you do not realize that this itself is a sin for which Christ has died. There is only one place you can find Grace, And that is unmerited favor to deal with the sting of guilt that comes from this sin. There is only one source of power to defeat the power of this temptation. And that is the grace that is found to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. I love these songs. One of them is, My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That is true about this sin. And this is true about your sin tonight. Your sins, they may be many, but Christ's mercy is more. Or how about the other song? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Notice grace is doing two things there. It's pardoning and it's cleansing you from within. This is a sin for which Christ died. And that should also sober us to the the great gravity of the sin, too. Remember that, right? This is a sin for which Christ had to die. This isn't a small, light thing that doesn't really matter. That's just a little slip-up here and there. No, this is a sin for which Christ had to die to satisfy the righteousness of God. So that should cause us to be very sober about the seriousness of this sin. It's a sin for which Christ died. Um, A few objectives tonight. Um, We're going to look into our Bibles for truth about the young believers' struggle against sexual impurity. We're going to look in our Bibles for the truth about the young believers' struggle against sexual impurity. And then, Lord willing, if we have enough time, we're going to seek to develop a strategy for victory. I actually believe you, young man, can walk in victory in this area. I actually believe that. And then also, if you are still willing, we'll, we'll, we'll allow you guys to ask some questions. I'll, I'll answer any questions you have. There's a number of men that are capable of answering any questions as well. So if, be thinking, hey, is there any, there any questions I have about this issue? I know this is a sensitive topic. I know this is probably not one that you want to necessarily confess um, so maybe you could ask your question vaguely. I don't know, uh, but it is important for you to be honest and open and transparent with somebody here. And I would appreciate any way I could be of assistance to you, even even now or later. Maybe you can pull me aside later. But let's let's first let's look at first the the truth about the believer, the young believer, struggle against sexual impurity. Um, I want to be very specific in talking about the young believers' struggle with sexual impurity, because you, young men, are young believers, if you are believers. Uh, The passage we're going to focus on is 1 Thessalonians. You can turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to read the first verse, and then explain a few things, and then read a little bit more. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 1, Paul writes to these young believers, Finally then, brothers, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us as as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Notice Paul is writing to young believers, he's encouraged about their growth, and he is eager for them to do what? To excel more and more. This is to abound more and more. This is to increase more and more. He is eager. Now let me tell you a few things about the Thessalonian believers. They were young believers. Paul was... Uh, torn away, ripped away from them prematurely before he had completed um, his pastoral work among them so he he felt an urgency to reach out to them and see how they were doing because he was ripped away from them you can read about that in Acts but they were, despite despite having Paul ripped away from them they were a model church and this could be a, a good way you could summarize the whole book of Thessalonians they were the model church they were a model of radical repentance and they were a model of supernatural affection. They turned from idols to wait for the sun from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1 talks about and then in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse, verse 13 they had this affection for God's word. It wasn't just man's word to them, it was God's word and they had an affection to hear it and to obey it. and And if we were to sum up the the basic structure of Thessalonians Paul writes Paul writes to assure them of his love and his affection for them in light of his absence. And Paul also writes to exhort them in holiness in light of Christ's imminence, and you can you can kind of understand the entire letter to the the Thessalonians just in those two sentences. First uh, uh, Thessalonians one through three is Paul assuring them of his love and affection in light of his absence, and First Thessalonians four through five is him exhorting them to holiness in light of Christ's imminence. And you could say it this way, all of the exhortations that Paul gives them now and for, all the way through the end of the letter, are written with this urgency about them. Christ is coming soon, his return is imminent, therefore live ready for that day. Or you could say it this way, Paul now turns to them and says, I love you. You know that I love you. I'm concerned for you. And now I want to exhort you as a father who loves you, live for maximum joy upon Christ's return. Uh, Live in such a way that you have maximum joy when you see Christ return. Live like Christ is returning tomorrow. That's what that word, excel, means. Live like Christ is about to come back. And and notice, it's interesting to me, what's his first exhortation to young believers? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who sets this aside is not setting aside man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That is Paul's first urgent exhortation in light of Christ's coming. Abstain from sexual immorality. Let's just look here uh, the truth about it. The truth about the young believer's struggle for purity. Number one, what is the first truth we see here about the young believer's struggle for purity? Sexual impurity is a favorite attack against young believers, particularly men. Sexual impurity is the favorite attack against young believers. It is a temptation to be sure to all believers, all ages, all spectrums of faith. But it is certainly the favorite attack of the young believers. We see that just by the the simple observation that this is the first exhortation that Paul is making to them. It almost seems as though he is urgent because he knows this is where the devil is going to want to hit them most. In in impurity. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right? We could define sanctification so many different ways. It is to be separated from sin and set apart for God by the means that God supplies. It is the believer's lifelong process in which they are becoming more and more like Christ. That is what sanctification is. It is being separated from sin and set apart from uh, from sin unto God. And it is a process that will take your entire life as a believer. And this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Notice. Sanctification here is not working to achieve salvation, and, so, and sanctification is also not unnecessary to your salvation. This is integral. This is a part of your call. He'll even tell us uh, right there in verse 7, right? God calls us in salvation, not to impurity, but to holiness. It's a part of our salvation call. But it is not necessarily that we're working towards our salvation. I love the verse in Hebrews 10.14, jot this one down, to always keep these concepts of being sanctified right in your mind. The believer is justified, declared perfect before God, and then is in this ongoing, continual process of sanctification. This is what it says in Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time Those who are being sanctified. That's a present tense ongoing being sanctified under the umbrella of having been perfected for all time. We are perfected for all time and yet at the same time we are being sanctified at the same time. That is the glory of being in Christ now here we see that, that Paul is calling Christians to pursue holiness. And once again, that is Christ-likeness in all areas, and that is certainly true about sanctification, right? You are to pursue sanctification in your speech, in your attitudes, in your in your mindset, in, in everything, in your discipline, in your work ethic. You're, you're to pursue sanctification in all of these things. But notice what Paul emphasizes in sanctification for these young believers. It is, it is one aspect of sanctification. It is the abstinence from sexual immorality. It is to keep away from sexual sin. That is very important to Paul. Where does, where does Paul emphasize this? It's right there in the area of what tempts you sexually. That is where the young believer needs to work hard to be sanctified in. Now, the word there, uh, sexual, sexual immorality, is a general word. It refers to a, a general lust, a general lust or desire of any kind for various sexual sins. It could refer to adultery. It could refer to all sorts of different things. Uh, so it's a very general word. And we could define sexual um, impurity or sexual immorality as any desire or any, de- uh, any lust of any sexual kind that is outside the one-woman, uh, one-man marriage arrangement that God has made. That is what sexual immorality is. It, is. it is experiencing any desire, any lust of a sexual kind outside of marriage now it's very interesting if you know the background of the Thessalonians you you know that they were living in a culture that was surrounded by sexual immorality but a culture that didn't necessarily call it immoral it was fine, it was regular it was ordinary, it was normal, I was reading a commentary about how some men had all sorts of different ways to satisfy themselves sexually and this was just considered normal, this was, this was upstanding citizens saying yeah I I have a concubine, I have a prostitute, and I have a wife. The concubine is for pleasure, the prostitute is for pleasure, the wife is for, you know, holding the house down. It was a, it was, that was the kind of culture that they lived in. They didn't live in a culture that said there is sexual immorality. So this is something new that Paul has taught them, evidently, as he even says, right? We, we have told you these things before. Now, a real quick question. Why does Satan love to attack Uh, young believers, particularly with sexual immorality. Well, I I jotted out a few reasons why Satan loves to attack you specifically with sexual immorality to see if one of these reasons kind of rings truth in your life and jot it down. Um, Number one, I would say sexual sin is a hard habit to break. That's why Satan loves to attack it. If you are like the Thessalonians, you're coming to Christ with some baggage, Some sexual practices may be in your past that are uh, forming deep ruts of temptation in your life. And it's very hard to break those habits. That's why he attacks you in the place that you are weak. Or how about this? Sexual sin is a strong enticement away from Christ, right? This is a desire, it's attractive, it's appealing. And I feel like it's more important in the moment than in following Christ. It is very easy to lure young believers away from Christ with this temptation. Or how about this one? Sexual sin feeds on pride. And if there's one thing that characterizes a young man and a young believer, it's pride. Right? I've got it all solved. Jesus is my Savior. I'm never going to sin again. That's what every single young believer I feel like ever says. Right? Or thinks at least. There's, there's, a, there's a frightening correlation, by the way, young men, in, uh, between pride and arrogance and pornography. There's a frightening correlation. To quote a book that I really like, only arrogant people look at, at porn. Only arrogant people look at porn. Young men are arrogant about their abilities and about their immunities, and that's why they're such easy targets for this temptation. Well, how about this one? Sexual sin feeds on boredom. Young men are bored because they are not seeking to find satisfaction in work, in discipline, in Uh, self-control. Actually, uh, satisfaction requires self-control because it... uh, Satisfaction comes from this delayed gratification that you get from hard work, from working for something, for laboring for something. And, and, and boredom just says, uh, I don't want to work for any of those things. I just want to get what I can get right now. I'm bored. Or how about this one, number five? Sexual sin isolates young men from their spiritual community. Why? Because they're too proud to admit their weakness, and that's a, a favorite attack of the enemy of your souls. Right? He wants to isolate you from the community around you and say you are unique. You have sins that are stronger than anyone else. You you are unlike them. And then maybe finally this another reason why the enemy of your souls uh, enjoys attacking you with sexual immorality. Sexual sin debilitates young men with guilt. There is a loss of a closeness with Christ because of your guilt. That is a powerful tool against your faith. And as a result of that result, more sin will result because there's not a closeness with Christ. We'll talk about this when we talk about uh, victory strategies. One of the strategies is a relationship with Christ that is sweet, that causes you anguish to lose. What Satan wants to do is to cause you such guilt that you feel separated from Christ and continue to sin. That is why this is a favorite favorite attack. Let's look at a, a second truth that we learn about the young believer's struggle for purity. Uh, number two, sexual impurity is a distinctive Christian struggle. Let me see if I can break this down. Sexual impurity is a distinctive Christian struggle. Once again, it's not just the young men who struggle with this. Old men do as well. It's a struggle of all believers. Uh, The young man seeks to keep his way pure in Psalm 119 through the word of God. And also old Job makes a covenant with his eyes that he will not look on a maid in Job 31. This is a struggle for all believers. But I want to argue that sexual impurity is a distinctive Christian struggle. Why? Because a believer, a Christian... Struggles because they want to obey God's will. This will be a struggle for you if you are a genuine Christian because you know the will of God and you want to obey it. That's where the guilt comes from, right? I want to obey God's word and God's will. And I haven't. I've failed. Notice, notice what he says here. He, he wraps it up. We, we know very well that this is God's will. Verse 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. By the way, this is just interesting to me. The the believer struggles because they want to obey the will of God. The true believer delights to know what the will of God is. Do you realize that? The true believer, if you are a true believer, you rejoice at the words on your page, verse 3, that this is the will of God. You want to know what pleases God. Why do you want to know the will of God? Well, number one, you want to know because it means I know what pleases God. And that's what I want to do. Number two, it means if I know the will of God, I know what's best, right? You you are following your Creator's design for you. And that causes your heart to rejoice because you believe that His will is best for you. And to know God's will is to know what is best. Satan's schemes, however, try to destroy God's will for you, right? Say it like this. Satan's scheme is this. He wants to make cheap sex look rich and make rich sex look cheap. Right? Sex in marriage, boring. Sex outside of marriage, exciting. Right? But you know God's will that he has created it, designed it, that the best form of intimacy is between a man and a woman in marriage. And, And when you know that this is God's will it causes your heart to rejoice. Why? Because you know what is best. How about this? It also means to know God's will that you know what's dangerous. Sexual pursuits outside of God's uh, plan steals, kills, and destroys. The believer rejoices to know God's will because they know what will destroy them. So there's this book that I really like. Um, It's called Finally Free by Heath Lambert on this topic. Uh, most of you already have it because I've given it to you uh, for those of you that I haven't given it to you I've got four copies over there but that's all I have but if any of you want one of those you can take one of those right now I mean not now but at the end of the night if you want one of them if, if we run out I will gladly buy more I'm always buying copies and putting them on my shelf to give to students like you uh, I found this book to be incredibly helpful not just in the strategies um, it applies not just in the grace it reveals, but also in the purity in which it does it. It is a book that doesn't lead you to new temptation. Some some books on purity on this topic you need to be aware of. Matter of fact, I read one that, that kind of unsettled me a little bit with the the descriptions it went into. I didn't want to be thinking about these things, and it was causing me to think about these things. That's why I would. Uh, Counsel you as young men to be careful about the kind of books that you use to fight this sin. That is one book that I really appreciate because of its purity. But he does tell this story that is horrifying about this man named Jamie. And of course he changed the name. And and once again, this is under the heading of how uh, sexual sin wants to kill, steal, and destroy And and the story of Jamie, and I'll just summarize it out of my head, is just like this. This young man kind of grew up in a nominal Christian home, kind of assumed they were Christians, weren't really serious at all. And as he grew into his high school days and his college days, it became very clear to Jamie, uh, one truth became very clear to him. No girl is going to like me. No girl is going to want me. I'm pretty ugly. And during this, about the same time, he was introduced to pornography through some friends or something like that, a sleepover. And he found it incredible. He had no options for a girl, and here he finally could have all the delights that his heart wanted. And it seemed like a great system. And, and initially, uh, the story goes, uh, that he found, he found it kind of uh, kind of difficult. I mean, this was back in the day when you had to go to a a store to buy pornography, right? And and he found it very a lot of anxiety was stirred up in him going in and doing these things. But slowly after time, he got really good at it, and it wasn't hard for him at all. And as the story goes on, he actually went to college and continued his habit, and it got very intense. He had shelves full of pornography, and in college he actually happened to meet who would be his wife, Alyssa, a girl actually liked him. And initially, she didn't really like his porn habit, but she thought it was totally normal, and she decided to marry him. But it just grew and grew and grew. And, and soon, a shelf of pornography became a bookshelf of pornography. And soon, a bookshelf of pornography became a basement of pornography. And then they added two twin daughters into the story. And suddenly he's not working. He's just at home in the basement. And the most horrifying part of this story is he puts a bed down there. Because he just lives down there. And his wife finally one day runs away with the girls. And he is left alone. And he doesn't even care. And the story ends with him at his parents' house. Probably in his parents' basement. Missing teeth but not caring, just watching one more video after video after video you tell me that sexual sin doesn't kill, steal, and destroy it destroyed his family, it destroyed him that's what it does that's what it does so the believer delights to know God's will by the way, that's, that is a definition of a dirty old man, and, and notice you used to have to do a lot of hard things to be a dirty old man it's pretty easy to do that today, right? You don't need a bookshelf. You don't need a basement. You need a phone. That's all you need. There's more porn out there than one human being can watch in their lifetime. And that's a horrifying thought. But the believer, once again, delights to know God's will because they know what is dangerous and they believe that in faith. It doesn't feel dangerous, but I'm going to believe it by faith that it is dangerous. And finally, the believer delights to know God's will because if they know God's will, they also know what God is going to make possible in their life. Do you realize that? When God says, this is my will for you, it also means God says, this is what I want to accomplish in your life. God's commands come with God's power to achieve those commands. Why? Because of the promises of the new covenant. Because of the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, God's commands, God's will can be accomplished, made possible. So when when you, young man, when you see verse 3, don't despair, rejoice. Rejoice because this is what pleases God. This is what is best. This is what's going to keep me from danger. And this is what God wants to do in my heart, mind, and life. The believer delights to know God's will. And therefore the believer will always struggle because they will want to do God's will. And I want to notice a contrast here. The unbeliever, on the other hand, won't struggle to do God's will at all. This Remember, this is a distinctive Christian struggle, right? They, they, they will struggle because they will want to do God's will, even if it is imperfect. But the unbeliever won't struggle to do God's will. They may be able to look the part for a while when it's pleasing to them to do so, when the temptations are off, when they're surrounded by other believers, let's say a retreat. But when the struggle sets in, they will not long endure against their own lustful passions. Notice what he says in verse 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Notice there's a contrast here between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer has been given the ability to do what? To possess their own vessel in holiness the vessel here most likely refers to their own body. It's a, an Old Testament uh, language term that probably Paul is saying to, to refer to their own body. That, they, that you, as a believer, learn to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. But, but notice, the believer has been given this ability, but in contrast to that, what is the unbeliever, the Gentile, who doesn't know God? They are possessed by their passions, right? Right? What is the Gentile like? They are living in lustful passion, not in sanctification and honor. They are ruled by their lust. So here's the contrast. The Christian possesses their own bodies, but the Gentiles, those who do not know God, are possessed by their own bodies. The Christian possesses their own bodies, not because of their own greatness, but because of the God that they know. Notice, that is the key, right? You know God, that is why you are not possessed by your own possessions. And, and knowing God, by the way, is more than just having facts about God. Knowing God is a rich biblical term that expresses a powerful, strong, dynamic relationship. It's a love for God, and it's a love from God. It's a protection from God. It's a delight in God. It's an affection for God. It's an armory from God that you can rely on. I know God, and I know strength and power and provision. I know the riches and the power of his resources. So the unbeliever... May struggle for a season, but will always give in to the delights of their hearts, right? But the believer will struggle forever against sin because of the delight that they have for God, the knowledge that they have of God. And even the young man, the young believer, will show their faith by their struggle. Once again, the point, right? This is a distinctive Christian struggle. This shows that you know God's will and delight in God's will and have power to achieve God's will in the power of the new covenant. Let's let's learn let's learn a, a third truth about the young believers' struggle for purity. A third truth about the young believers' struggle for purity. Sexual impurity is most devastating for believers. What we get here is a sense that when a Christian falls into sexual ruin, it is the saddest thing of all. Now, obviously, there's various reasons why this is sad. The believer has a new heart, made by the Spirit, because of the work of Christ on the cross, and, and the believer loves God and loves God's will, and departing from God devastates the believer... But notice here what Paul says. Verse 6. Notice the devastation here. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as we also told you and solemnly warned you. It is most devastating for the believer to sin and to sin against others in this way. Notice, notice this is a this is a sin that's being described as a sin with other people that's impacting other people. A man transgresses and defrauds his brother. To transgress something means to cross a prohibited boundary. To defraud someone means to take something from someone else that doesn't belong to you. That's what you do when you're sinning. We like to think of sexual sin as an isolated, insulated, individual thing, don't we? This is just impacting me. But your sin always is impacting others as well. This is a sin against another, whether it is against your family or it's against the the object of your lust itself. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you. And when you, as a believer... Perhaps in doing that, lead another believer into sin. It is gross and it's disastrous. It's devastating. It's a great transgression. It is abusing the fellowship that you have received in Christ. You could look up You could look up Matthew 18.6 and that speaks about the seriousness of leading someone else into sin and and perhaps that's what's going on here. Don't let any of you um, cause another one of your brothers to sin. But there in that passage in Matthew 18 Jesus is actually warning people of the danger of being that person who causes another person to sin and he says it would be better for you to die a horrible, painful death than to cause someone else to sin. And that that can... apply to a believer as well it is, a, it is a horrible thing especially for a believer to sin in this way and it is a horrible thing for a believer to cause another believer to fall into sin and perhaps this begins leading another believer into sin in just improper conversation improper contact improper um, angles in your relationship improper or immodest address this can lead another believer to sin And that should be most devastating for believers. And in fact, look at the seriousness of this. Look at the Lord's response. The Lord is described as, in LSB the avenger, the punisher of the one who sins in this way. If that doesn't frighten you to death, I don't know what will. He is the one who brings justice, the one who writes every wrong. I'm reminded of Ephesians 5, 5-6 through 6, that says this, for this you know with certainty that no sexual immorality or impurity or greediness uh, who, uh, that person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, Just think about it this way. There is no sexual sin that will go unpunished. The Lord is an avenger, right? And by the way, that is why believers want no part of it. That's what Paul is saying there in Ephesians 5, right? You can smell the judgment of God and you don't want a piece of this. Why? Not because that's your judgment, but because you have been freed and liberated from that. Will God avenge believers? Well, in a way, God won't avenge them by placing his wrath on them in judgment. But what will God do? He will bring harsh consequences into your life. That is probably how God will be an avenger. He will bring harsh consequences in your life. But remember, those consequences and that discipline is to cause you, to lead you to repentance and sorrow for sin. What do you do if you have sinned against someone else? Well, You plead for Christ's mercy and then you also repent of all the sin to that other person that you know and seek God's grace to change because the Lord will be the one who avenges the person who doesn't. And once again for a believer that's because he wants to bring you to repentance and he will punish you until he does. Let's look at our our final thing that we learn about the young believer's struggle for purity. We've learned about how sexual impurity is the favorite attack of your adversary. We've learned about how sexual impurity is the distinctive Christian struggle. And we've also seen how sexual impurity is, the most, dev- is most devastating for believers. One more thing. This is my favorite part. Number four, sexual impurity does not have to dominate you. That is the truth that just thunders from this passage. And remember who Paul is speaking to, Paul is speaking to young believers. This is a truth for the young believers struggle for purity. Sexual impurity does not have to dominate you. Often it is assumed of the young man, well there's nothing you can do. Often it is told to the young man, it's just a part of youth. Often you are assured as a young man it's just a normal part of adolescence. Some say these things, maybe perhaps well-meaning, seeking to ease the guilt of sin that maybe a young man faces. But that's not how God's word calls you to deal with your sin's guilt not by just excusing it away not by saying this is normal that's not how God ever calls you to deal with your sin you could say it this way all you do by lessening sin's guilt is lessen God's supply all you do in lessening sin's guilt is lessening the power of the gospel to be triumphed in your life Instead you should look, you should behold your sin in all of its ugliness according to the word of God and be sorrowful for it. But then also believing say and this is the sin for which Christ has died. That is the only way that is the only way that you will have victory is by confessing it as it is. But God actually enables believers to do more than just be liberated from sin's guilt. That is a glorious truth. God, by his power, also enables believers to be, in an imperfect way in this life, liberated from sin's grip as well. Like I said, this does not have to be a sin that dominates you. What does 1 Thessalonians reveal about the young believers? Uh, A victory against this. Uh, Look at the victory assumed that is possible for a young believer from 1 Thessalonians. First off, look at verse 7. For God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. Notice there, the call there is referring to God's call uh, in salvation in our life. And then notice... God calls us not to impurity, but in sanctification. It is possible. It is a part of God's call. God's call is a huge theme in First Thessalonians, in chapter one, four through seven. Their election is evident. Their election is evident because of how they've responded to the message. God's call in their life. In chapter one, verse nine and ten, their God's call in their life is evident based on how they have turned from sin and are awaiting Christ Jesus. God's call on their life is also evident in chapter 2, verse 12, in how they are now living a life that is worthy, right? God's call is your entire salvation, begun in Christ and ended in Christ. And notice what he says here in verse 7, right? God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification, right? The gospel isn't for a life of impurity but for holiness. The gospel is given to us so that we can be pure. So that we can live pure lives and have joy and satisfaction in our purity. It's not for free sin, but it's for being freed from sin. To fight against sin freely. That is what the gospel does in our life. Again, once again, because of the new covenant, God's commands never come to us without God's power through the Holy Spirit also notice the victory that's assumed in verse 8 as well notice he says this consequently he who sets aside uh, sets this aside is not setting aside man but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you notice once again Paul is assuming of young believers that the man who sets this teaching about sexual purity aside is setting aside the God who gives the Holy Spirit what does that mean The Holy Spirit is given to you for your purity, for your holiness. You, a young believer, have the power to be free from sexual impurity. It's not in your strength, but it's through the powerful presence of the Spirit of God given to you. And that is a glorious thing. Or, look at my favorite verse in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. This is the benediction. Remember, it is God's will. Your sanctification. But notice how Paul ends this letter now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. All eyes on this verse. Benediction. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. That's assurance right there. God's will. God's will is your sexual purity. And God's want is your sexual purity. God is faithful in calling you, and also faithful, verse 24, in bringing it about inside of you through the Spirit. If you disregard this, if you say, it's impossible for me, you are disregarding the God who gives you the Holy Spirit to do so. Or to say it simply, sexual impurity does not have to dominate you. That's the truth of your struggle. But that doesn't mean assurance or victory is automatic. That's just truth. I think a lot about the current state of the teaching of the church right now and typical messages that are given to young men on this topic. And are those truths stated? Or is it just a sorry, we're all sorry, we're all miserable, let's go home. Let's talk about truth. Truth. But let's also not divorce truth from strategy. This great gospel truth that we have calls us to purity. Calls us to uh, wage war through a strategy for victory against impurity. Let's develop now a strategy for victory. I, I will move to my second purpose here. Once again, I am convinced that you can begin, even today, to have victory in your life against impurity. But it will require you to pursue the strategy that God uh, lays out for you in his word. And once again, a great book on the strategy of God right over there on the piano. I'll, I'll borrow... And by borrow, I mean steal from all of it right now. The young man's recipe for victory. Let's write it out real quick. Uh, number one, the young man's recipe for victory. Grow in the knowledge of God's grace. Grow in the knowledge of God's grace. Once again, I love this book, Finally Free. It writes powerful strategy in, in the actual grace of God. This is not just, hey, do better, young man. It's No, it's do better because of the grace that enables you to do better. The gospel gives you grace to win. It gives you unmerited favor in guilt and unmerited power to fight. And you need to grow in the knowledge of God's grace. That's what we've been doing so far. We've been growing in the knowledge of God's grace. Continue to grow in the knowledge of God's grace. See what the Bible says about sexual impurity and God's call to purity. Here's another strategy for you. Number two, remove sin's opportunity. This is a famous verse. Romans 13, 14 is very true, though. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. And I'm going to be honest with you. Many of you fail because you allow temptations to live so close to you. You need radical measures. As Jesus would say, you need to cut off something. Now, to be clear, radical measures like removing a phone, removing a TV, you know, sometimes, sometimes these radical measures need to stay in your life forever. So there are some places that you should never go. And, and, but there are some things that are kind of useful in life, like a phone. And you can't live the rest of your life Oh, without perhaps a phone, maybe you could. Maybe you could get one of those old, you know, <laughs> one of those. <laughs> but I think sometimes radical measures aren't for, for uh, aren't to be permanently placed in your life, but they're to give you space to enable grace to strengthen your heart for war, so that you don't have to live in a closet anymore in your life, so that you have power to turn away from temptation when you see it. Sometimes radical measures, though, are important in your life. Sometimes you need to remove a phone for a few months. Sometimes you need to remove movies for a certain period of time to strengthen your own mind and your own heart so that you can turn away from sin. But the, the main thing here is, and it's a principle very clear in Scripture, you need to remove sin's opportunity. You need to remove sin's opportunity let's look at another strategy this one will be a little bit longer because it's my favorite and then I'll zip through the rest hopefully Uh, you need to learn how to fail you need to learn how to fail and I'll be honest with you there are few lower places to be than the guilt you feel when you fail in impurity, right? There are a few lower places to be, right? Suddenly, every reproach and every guilt presses in on you. Suddenly, the only thing you do is mentally punish yourself for hours on end. But punishing yourself for hours on end is actually not really that helpful. It probably will lead you to greater stumbling later. Why? Because all it's doing is separating you from the love and grace of Christ. I would say, carefully, that the moment you fail can actually be the source, the conduit, the turning point in your struggle with this sin. If you learn how to fail well. This could be the greatest moment of change in your life. Because if you do it the right way, in this very moment, you can receive transforming grace by believing in the means that God has given you. What do do you need to learn about failing to transform your failure? For success. Well, once again, there's this acronym that I really like. It's CAR. C A R. (laughs) It's really simple, and that helps me remember it. And that's why I like it. When I fail, I need to do these three things C A R. Number one, I need to confess my sin. Number one. Don't brush it under the carpet. Don't really pretend like it's not sin. No, you need to take it as sin and say, this is sin, God, in all of its gruesomeness and ugliness. Heath Lambert says this, when you deny your sin, you deny yourself access to God's grace. Therefore, you need to confess your sins. The first thing you need to do when you are sinning to transform your life is to confess your sins. Number two, A. A. Confess your sins. A. Affirm God's forgiveness of your sin. Once again, Lambert says this. While it may seem humble and modest to question God's forgiveness, it is actually prideful and arrogant to refuse to believe what God declares to be true about you. Repentance means affirming what God says about you. You need to, in that very moment of guilt, confess your sin and also affirm God's forgiveness of your sin. Have a memory verse that you love. Put it into your heart and set it there. Every time you need to affirm God's forgiveness. Think about it like maybe Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this, not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. You need to affirm that. And you need to affirm in that very moment of guilt, and this is a sin for which Christ has died Confess your sin, affirm God's forgiveness of your sin, and finally, uh, request God's grace to change. You need to boldly go to God and say, God, I have sinned. God, I believe that you have forgiven this sin even, and God, I want your grace and power and help to change. To turn from this sin and turn to you. Look at what it says. Look at what it says in Romans 6 verse uh, 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. God wants to give you grace to walk in newness of life and you, my friend, need to request it. Or how about this? What are you, what are you, what are you believing when you are asking God's grace to change? How about Romans 6 Romans six, eleven. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. Lord, help me to change. Help me to be dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus even now. Stop mentally punishing yourself. That will do nothing. Start confessing. Start affirming. Start requesting. What does it say? What does it say in 1 John? I love 1 John. I'm always going back to it. 1 John 1. It's written to believers for assurance. What does it say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord God, you say if I confess my sin, you are faithful to cleanse me. Cleanse me even now. Teach me how to obey you better in the future. I would argue when you do that, you have the power of the Spirit within you to bring about God's will in your life. It might not be pretty, but that is how you fail in a way that could be transforming. Through confessing, through affirming, through requesting. Once again, I said I'd move fast. Let's try a few more strategies here. Um, Strategy number four, attack your heart of pride. Once again, I've said this before. When you are looking at porn, you are an arrogant person. You are thinking, this won't impact me. You're saying, my will is greater than God's will. Once again, only arrogant people look at porn. They think they can Get by it. Miss out on its danger. Here's another strategy, another victory strategy, number five. Be sorrowful about the right things. I love Second Corinthians 7. It paints a picture, though, of two kinds of repentances. One repentance is the, the first sinner is someone who is sorry over losing stuff. They're grieved that they're missing out on things. They can't sin anymore like they used to be able to sin. They feel the sting of sin, yes, but they still cherish it in their heart. The irony of this person who is confessing their sin is they are showing the same selfishness in their sorrow for sin that they that they use to pursue that sin in the first place, selfishness. but the second sinner is someone who is sorry that their sin is against God, and they're sorry that their relationship with God has been destroyed. That is the true kind of sorrow that will cause victory to sprout up in your life. It produces, what does it produce? It produces earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself, alarm, godly fear, uh, longing, zeal for restoration. The person who is sorrowful in displeasing God, in, in losing the fellowship of God, has a powerful victory against sin. Or here's another strategy, a sixth strategy. Learn the purity cheat codes. I've talked to you about thankfulness before. Uh, Thankfulness fights against the root of impurity because the root issue of porn is greediness. You're greedy for something that does not belong to you and you think will satisfy you. Notice the difference here. Sexual immorality, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 3-4, through 4, sexual immorality, and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, nor filthiness or foolish talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. What's in contrast to all of those things, especially sexual impurity, it is thankfulness. Practice thankfulness and you practice the cheat code for purity. Another strategy, establish the right kind of accountability. Some people think accountability is a bunch of peers talking about how weak they are and then just going home. True accountability is you going to someone who is stronger in the faith than you and getting their help and assistance to pull you out of where you're at, to dive into your life and to see where you are weak, where you need to shore up some strategies in your life. That is true accountability. Accountability isn't just commiserating with a group of other men that are just as weak as you. It is getting help. Or a final one. Build your love for Christ. Once again, this is the purpose of the radical measures. This is the purpose of repentance. This is the purpose of accountability. You love Christ and are anguished by how this sin separates you from Christ. And what is the greatest... Defense against impurity, it is a heart that is filled with love for Christ and belief in the grace of Christ for them. The heart that loves, cherishes, and delights in its relationship with Christ is a strong heart against temptation and sin. And once again, let me remind you that this is all through the grace of our God in Christ. Remember, First Thessalonians 5 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. God's will is possible in your life because God is faithful and wants to do it. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening, and we pray that it would be a blessing to our hearts as we revel in the truth of your victory over our sin's guilt, and even marvel in the truth of your strength against sin's temptation. I pray for every one of these men that they would not isolate themselves but reach out to strong men around them that can help them to strengthen their own strategies. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have no idea what time I started. Probably was a long time ago. But if you have any questions, now is the time to ask. Anybody have any questions? Leaders or anybody? Yes, Matthew. This
1: is more of a wisdom question. Uh what factors go into deciding how much accountability is most helpful for you like analysis one or overhead
0: or like trouble of overhead. Right. How how would you go about that? Right. Well there is there is a uh, there is an abundance of wisdom in having an abundance of counselors, I suppose. Uh There is kind of a culture to it of accountability partners that's kind of a little bit funky. And that's kind of why I push back a little bit about accountability. And sometimes accountability can work against you, right? You can be more afraid of your accountability partner finding out than God who already knows. And that's no good, right? So the wisdom I would say in that is what do I need to strengthen myself? Um, What do I need to... Um, strengthen protections around me who, who, do I, who would be most valuable to really look in and examine my life do I really need seven different accountability partners uh, maybe maybe but maybe what you also need is just to cut off sin in other areas like maybe you need to try other strategies but I, maybe that's just a wisdom question but yeah I appreciate that any other questions yes Timothy
2: uh, can we regain purity?
0: Can we regain purity? Mm-hmm. Yes. What does it say in 1 John 1, right? Uh, it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to what? What? Forgive. Forgive, and what else? There's a word in there that's very important. And this is this is, we should get very excited about words, right? Cleanse. What does that mean? It means you regain purity. As you, as you pursue victory in your life, as victory becomes more of a dominant thing, as you're no longer defeated by sin, purity can abound in your life. Even for someone that has sinned a lot, they can have incredible purity, um, incredible joy with a future wife. You know, um, But that's because God is faithful to cleanse your heart and to change your heart from the inside out. Um, once again, I love the I love the biography of, of um, John Newton. You know, right? There was a man that was impure to the core, right? And he was cleansed from the core, and became very useful to God. And I think that, and that's a very powerful um, biography and illustration for us. So I'd say, yeah, it's totally possible to regain purity. Any other questions? Yeah.
3: Like radical measures.
1: Uh, usually that means cutting out a lot of the source of temptation mm-hmm. from someone's life. But one struggle that people really have during that is how do you introduce some things that are pretty useful, mm-hmm. like, say a phone. Mm-hmm. Take away a phone because it a source of temptation, mm-hmm. but eventually they might need a phone. How yeah. would one go about putting it back in your life but to use it, and so that. it's, not just a direct temptation for you yeah
0: that's a good question I would like to hear other wisdom too I think Um, what I would say is um, similar to what we heard with Solomon um, control it's all about control right reintroduce things with controlled measures right I'm not just jumping back into this phone and doing all the same apps that I used to do I am going to use this phone for this purpose and that purpose and only those purposes and I'm going to test and evaluate my heart if I can even handle using my phone again or just even doing, doing those motions with my fingers causes a temptation, right? And, and so I would say just small little steps, small little pieces. There are programs that you can use. There are ways that your parents can monitor what you're doing on your phone and really kind of help you kind of bracket yourself in that way. I, I, I think that would be how I would do it. I'd be very slow um, in doing that. Any other thoughts on that? Um, that. So, um,
1: like what you were saying for that point uh, for radical measures, you give yourself
3: space to strengthen your body and heart and you, you have a lot more tools at to your to disposal from that time when you come into the uh, using to come again um, and a lot of that probably came from intentional like fellowship with God and devotion and with God and, uh, and I remember when we went over this book uh, uh, I like, did we talk, um, I think it was a different one. Um, Killing Sin Habits. We, we, we made a battle plan um, uh, of verses to, to combat something like that. Uh, and it's very practical to reintroduce this whole, but it also might be dangerous for you to think that it's easy for me to fall uh, into like uh, these things like random. And it's, it really is, but, I mean, you have, uh, the purpose of you stepping away is to grow in Mm-hmm. I think that you should have more confidence in that, not yourself but in your relationship with mm-hmm.
0: okay. yeah, in theory you don't return to that thing the same person right
4: yeah, as far as introducing it back in mm-hmm. and finding red flags right, so you, you know like you're, you' get, you get a phone back, you know you're going to use it for only certain purposes. Mm-hmm. You find yourself using it to waste time, mm-hmm. right? Which you know leads down yeah. another path. That is a red flag. You need to be honest with your parents who are probably the ones that are going to be involved in your life taking away your phone, right? Mm-hmm. You be honest. Look, I'm, I'm wasting time again on my phone, and I think that's going to lead down another mm-hmm. path yeah. eventually. And that, that maybe means you're not ready yet. Right. Um, so that's that's the kind of things that you need to look for. And there's roadblocks that you can set up before you go down too far. Yeah. Um, that would be like a red flag, or the like sign that you're not there yet. Um, and you need more time.
0: Yeah, um, so I like I like that a lot. That's really good. Like yeah, set up set up set up roadblocks and have such a sensitive conscience that you don't even get close to the impurity issue. Right? You're 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 struggling for discipline and for diligence and for using your time well. Um, like, you know, right, it's like, yeah. oh,
4: like I tend to go on Instagram before, mm-hmm. yeah, and you shouldn't do that, right? Mm-hmm. And then you find yourself instinctively going back to Instagram, mm-hmm. right? You're not ready because you're not thinking, thought. you're not being thoughtful in how you're using your phone, right? Yeah. Or if it's just like searching the internet or YouTube, whatever it is, you need to figure out what that is in your mind that's leading you down towards time wasting and mm-hmm. towards boredom and towards all these things that are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing,
1: maybe in the circles that I ran into, is for some reason this objection to having a permanent fence set up between you and content. And I think there is to be wisdom and said there's never a need for a believer to be able to access a, this type of content online. So having just typical like security privacy settings set up on your phone. Um, you don't want this idea, I don't think it's wise to say, I want to be able to look at sin in the, you know, in the face, the, you know, the bottle on the shelf and just be able to walk away, right. just to be able to pat yourself in the back and say, I got the self-control. Right. I think there's a lot of good wisdom to just, you know, we all know that we'll pursue sin when we're being sinful and things don't protect you completely, but there's nothing unwise about having those just general fences set up constant blockers and you know, no matter how old you are, again, 12 to 70, there's just no need to be able to access that. So the more right. roadblocks, borders you can have, it's just helpful.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, think, I think a lot of godly men, actually, a lot of mature men, actually have a lot of security in their life that might not even be necessary, mm-hmm. but they have no time. They don't. They don't want to do those things. Mm-hmm. I, I think sin sin can trap you and sneak up on you, but often it comes through very expected channels, right? Mm-hmm. Wasting time. That's where it comes. Boredom, right? Yeah. And you don't. Just, just don't do it. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, Matt.
1: Sorry, slow one. Uh, if you're someone who you said that boredom is often a root for mm-hmm. being able to gratify yourself, mm-hmm. the use a formula. Mm-hmm. if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of time on their hands and doesn't have a lot of ways to do so like being able to find a job mm-hmm. if you're not old enough to do so what are some ways that you can use that time in your day
0: right yeah pray more pray more than you do um, I, I think what I, I didn't able I, I was nervous about the time so I kind of skipped that point too much but where I was going with that was I almost think that that a young man needs to not be so not be so determined to never be bored <laughs> you need to be fine with boredom in your life and and not give up all of your give give away the farm because you're bored right i'm bored i'm gonna sin right boredom is okay boredom is how you get a paycheck right I am doing things that are boring. And you need to just say in your life, you know, boredom is not a sin, maybe perhaps. Faithfulness is what I'm shooting for. Um, and I, I think some young men are just panicking when they're bored. There's nothing to do. I've got to do something. I'm going to waste my time. And, and I, that's what I, I, why I think Satan likes to prey on young men particularly in this way because they, they attribute like a sin and an evil to being bored I cannot be bored so I'm going to be stupid instead because right what What, Andrew why
2: can Bluey parents
0: say it's okay to be bored it's okay to be bored see no, Bluey that's truth that's for that. life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to I be know. bored one episode uh, I, don't, I, I cannot vouch for the context of that statement, but, <laughs> um, Just the statement I don't know like how many of you are bored and you work jobs right your jobs are very boring sometimes right yeah, yeah. Speak for yourself. <laughs> my my job, however, is never boring. So uh, Jay's job is never boring, right? right. Never boring, never
1: boring. It is like Andrew said that balance of self control. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be like I have to be busy, or else mm-hmm. I'm going to be just temptation all over the place. Right. You don't want your only ability to fight temptation to be busyness. Yes, well. that's true. Other spiritual maturities, self control, yeah. discipline. You know, desire for godly yeah. things, right? It's like the put on, put off. You don't just focus on the put off, yeah. focus on the
0: on. Right.
4: That's good. It's yeah. like really being purposeful. Purposeful, yeah. purposeful of your boredom to Purposeful of the, the time that you you have. It's, it's um, if you're passive. You, you go into a situation where you know you're going to have a lot of free time and you're passive and you're planning about it. If you're not planning about it, then yes, you're going to lead and be led into different temptations. But if you plan like, okay, well, I'm going to have this free time and I, this is what I'm going to do with it then, mm-hmm. you know um, and maybe I won't have much to do right. but I have plans, I can pray for these things or I can, whatever it is you go in with a plan, your person's purposefully it's, that boredom has turned into something that's, mm-hmm. that is a defense against uh, temptation
0: yeah, yeah like my, my times of temptation are vacation times because I get thrown off by vacations. And that's why I need to be very per- purposeful in vacations, right? What am I going to, how am I going to pray for my wife? How am I going to uh, spend time with my wife? How I, what book am I going to read? You know, just make a plan, a strategy. Um, otherwise, yeah, purpose, purposelessness is a, is a very, it's a very good word. And I appreciate that, yeah. yeah jack
5: uh, I, I think one thing that helps me in not just purity but in just like in in addition to purity is even it is doing boring tasks rather than just being bored like mm-hmm. on this sitting here bored mm-hmm. like it, it's there's like um Boring task. Like, there's a difference between just being like bored, bored, and sitting there, mm-hmm. and like doing something boring, but it's keeping you occupied. Like, just mm-hmm. go clean the dog poop and you right. know clean something. Yeah, usually clean something. Yeah. There's all, there's so many things to clean. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Your mom will love you. Also, uh, <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. There's a difference. There's a difference.
5: There's a, yeah. There's a lot of things to do like that. It it's also just it's good enough for everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Yes.
1: What's the balance uh, of ignorance is bliss? On this topic, rather than being intentional and in setting, I know that mm. I was more raised with like, yeah, the less you know, the better. Right. And just like, you know, you go this direction, don't, don't, don't even look over there, type of thing.
0: Yeah, I think ignorance is bliss is ignorant because mm-hmm. we don't have ignorance anymore. Um, you can't drive down the road. Um, you can't watch a movie. I without being somewhat tempted, possibly, you know like there, there's opportunities to be tempted everywhere, right? So just saying, the less I talk to people about this, the less the le, uh, I'm talking more like from my point, point of view here, guys, the less I talk to you guys about this, the less you 'll sin. No, I don't believe that. I know I know, well, like Tim Challis, for example, he assumes young men struggle with this. So he assumes it, right, and but that should lead to a conversation with people about it, right. Um, my former youth pastor down south, Josh Petrus, would say would would ask a young next time I ask you guys this question, you can just like just absolutely dissolve in fear, I suppose, but first he'd ask them, "Have you been reading your Bible?" and they'd say no and then he then his next question was, okay, so how much porn have you been looking at so like he like attributed the two i don't know if i would exactly attribute the two but like that, that was pretty intense right <laughs> you know um but i i i think in the day and age that we live i don't want to be i don't want to be i don't want to be overly cautious because it's it's so overwhelming it's it's so it is it is, um, it is an industry, a business, that is trying to make money. So they're going to find ways to get their content to as many eyes as they can. So I assume you all struggle with this. I do. I know you do. And that's why I preach the gospel to you, because I believe that is important. Um, but I also want to be very clear about strategies. I don't always talk about this topic, do I? But when I do, I always talk about strategies and talk about the grace of God, because I want you guys to know. Know the truth. But yeah, so I that's kinda how I would lean. I'm already thinking about conversations or when it will start with my kids, you know. Like when when is too soon. I I assume earlier rather than later almost these days, sadly. Any other questions? I'd
2: just like to make a comment. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Like just like what you said, you assume earlier rather than later. the last poll I heard was seven year olds is the average time when people start looking at porn. And that should break everybody's heart. But um, it is a business. Um, and I wanna say, uh, David, like you bringing the gospel into this, which is so I've never heard of PRT message, like on this specific topic with a group of guys, it's usually just like, you know, gun ho, we can do this, you know, end of story. But applying the gospel in there is just Beautiful, and uh, but we really do live in a time where um, it's everywhere. And it's almost like in the first uh, it reminds me of the third, fourth century when modest monks started coming into you know into play. The reason why they started doing that and going into monasteries was because the world was so sinful. Because then they weren't persecuted anymore, and they're just like, man,
5: <laughs>
2: I want to be godly, so. They would go into little monks and monasteries and stuff and hide away, but we can't do that. I'm actually like, listening to this conversation. I'm just like, man, huh, that's a seems like a good idea. <laughs> it, I, I get why they did it, is what I'm saying. I get why they did it. But yeah, so um, it, it's just, but, but that kind of thinking, it kind of cheapens our mindset of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have, and we can conquer this specific set. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how would you
1: suggest um, coming alongside a peer if they have uh, been open mm-hmm. with you and mm-hmm. by whatever reason you, you have found out about it, how mm-hmm. would you um, encur- encourage them in a way that would be beneficial?
0: Yeah, so the kind of accountability that that I want to see in in a life that's struggling with this is the accountability that has wisdom to help someone so in theory with a peer you could have a little bit of wisdom you could already be asking like the questions like okay do you still have your phone do you go to do you do you sleep with your phone right do you do you do all these other things are you failing all these other things you should stop doing that. that that you could almost start maybe asking some of those questions there's a little bit of wisdom there, I would think, that you'd need. But, um, but also, I, as, as a friend to them, what you should be doing is you should be trying to gauge, do they have anybody else in their life? And if I'm the only person that they're trusting, that's probably a red flag in and of itself because they feel safer with me because they, they don't actually want to bring somebody that has firepower because that means consequences and they lose out on sin and that almost means that they they have that kind of sorrow for sin that's not real sorrow for sin, right? They actually don't want to lose this sin. That's why they're going to you and you only. So, I mean, I don't know if you want to call them on that, but you could, you, could, you could, I would, if I was you, I would steer them in a direction like, are you talking to your dad about this? Are you talking to your pastor about this? Why are you not talking to them about this? I'm willing to pray with you, to be with you, to encourage you, to do the right thing. But ultimately... I think you should go to someone that's beyond my abilities because I'm kind of struggling with this too. You know, That's, that's what I would do if I, if I was you. I would kind of balance it like that. But. All right, anything else? Any other comments? Jay? <laughs> Most intimidating to preach this message with you here, by no. the way. Thanks for being here.
3: What is the... I think mean, the biggest thing, I think somebody mentioned already, is just intentionality. And I think anything that you do in life, whatever you're doing, just like First Corinthians 10 talks about, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And you can hear intentionality in everything that the writers of scripture talk about in the New Testament. So when they're telling you what it means to live a godly life, intentionality is always part of that. And if you're an intentional Christian, it's when you're not an intentional Christian, that's when sin comes, sneaks up on you, mm-hmm. doesn't really sneak up on you because you weren't intentional mm-hmm. in those moments. Yeah. And so being intentional, proactive, um, and it doesn't mean you have to just busy yourself with just whatever, but um, having intentionality in everything that you do, you have, you have a godly purpose in everything that you do. That, will, that changes things. So I think that's just the biggest thing that I come away with. And then also, just be mindful of your own heart. Um, that it's not always just pleasure. That obviously is a huge part of this, but there are often various things that are going on, perhaps, that lead up to this kind of a yeah. sin. And And David already mentioned it. Uh, there's a few of these that uh, can come as a result. Some of them are even just anger. Sometimes there's anger involved. And life, you're angry at God. Life, this is the way that you want it to You're not submissive to God's will. Being submissive to God's will is, and being thankful, like David was talking about, it's the cheat code to get you to the point where um, I don't need that. I don't need that because I'm content with what God has for me. It's huge. Uh, it's really funny, but someone said this to me, but The best kind of person to marry is the person who's most content in God's will not being married. Not that they're resisting marriage, but they're sometimes the best kind of person to marry. Because they're content wherever God has them. That's the best kind of place to be for anybody. The more content you can be in God's will right now where you are, it's the best best thing. And you'll be able to, I think, find greater resistance. And you're like, I don't need that. Wow,
0: that was great. Yeah, Jack.
3: Um,
5: how do you suggest, I mean, you know, at the exact, how do you suggest we bring this up in the future with, um, like, spouses and, um, like, assuming that it's not still a problem, but, like, how do you suggest speaking about it, you know, in retrospect to your future spouse?
0: With honesty, but with care, it's a it's a very hurtful thing to confess to her, and it it will cause her to be very sad, and it will it will it will cause all sorts of problems, maybe in her heart and in her faith, mm-hmm. where she starts like doubting whether or not you know. She's good enough, or something. You know, that'll cause all sorts of temptation. So do it with grace and kindness and humility, um, but with honesty for sure, right? Um, And and you will receive forgiveness from from a godly woman. You will, but um, it will not be easy. And that should, by the way, that that'll obviously that should motivate you now, right? That's a terrible conversation to have. Trust me, it's a terrible one. And I don't want to have that conversation ever again. That's one of the reasons why I fight so hard. But, um, but, but when you do, you, you do need, in, in, in a way that's, I would say, discreet. You don't need to say everything. And, and sometimes it's not even helpful to, to have your wife be your quote-unquote accountability partner. I think she's too um, involved emotionally. To do that and maybe it would be more helpful to find somebody else. But but you do need to be honest with her about the struggle and you do need to to um be able to lead her spiritually in it despite despite that. So I don't know if I answered that question. Just all I basically said was, Oh, that's a hard conversation. But it's a conversation you must have. Um but I, I don't but I do think it's it's possibly a very dangerous conversation, so you should be very gentle in it. Yeah. Should I suggest? Go for it. That
3: is a sin that has occurred before marriage that that conversation ought to be had before marriage.
0: You because it happened before marriage, you don't think that conversation should happen before marriage. It should No, it should happen before marriage. Oh yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. So so, so premarital counseling is a beautiful thing. It's where you're supposed to argue about all the things that uh, you guys are going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that is, a, that is a sin. Yeah, I totally agree. That you need to bring up to her full honesty. This is the man I am, but this is the man, by God's grace, I'm seeking to become. And let her decide. And let that put the fear of God in you, too, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Thanks, Russell. All right. Um, I can see you guys are all wilting. So... Uh, We'll leave it at that.